good to see you here tonight. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles. If you want to get out your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Chronicles. Um, if you go to the back, you'll notice the doors are shut. Our neighbors are having a worship concert uh, tonight, so that's going to be starting up in about 15 minutes. So we might hear a little bit of bass going on in the background. Just ignore that, um, and we'll, we'll continue on with our worship. So um, we've been studying through... Uh, all the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. And I skipped over First and Second Chronicles, and, and now I've come back to, to First and Second Chronicles after going through every other book of the Bible. Uh, so we are now to the final book, uh, and we've been doing overviews of each book to try to get the message out of each book, and I hope that's been helpful for you. I hope that the, the resources that are available on the website you can go to and you can listen and and read through kind of those summaries uh, will help you in our Wednesday night study where we go book by book through each book of the Bible. Uh, but I like this kind of perspective, and I hope, uh, I mean, I, I, I've heard from you that a lot of you like that as well and appreciate understanding the Bible from kind of a big picture point of view uh, before diving into the details. So uh, tonight we'll wrap up this study of 66 uh, books and then. Uh, we'll start into uh, something else. Hadn't really decided yet for the once a month kind of uh, mix things up study. Uh, but we also just finished Galatians. So uh, we're really about to start a bunch of new stuff. So I'm excited about that. Uh, Jonah is going to be our PM uh, study in the, in, for the next few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but tonight we're going to be going through the entire book of Second Chronicles. We went through First Chronicles last time, and we studied that. Now we're going to go through Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is a little bit lengthy of a book, so we're not going to cover all the details of this book for sake of time and your attention span. Uh, but we are going to kind of summarize our way through this and make sure we get a big picture understanding of what this book is all about. Uh, to understand First and Second Chronicles, you have to understand who it's written by. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a collection of historical documents. You could just imagine yourself an exile uh, who's been given the news about the ability to return to Jerusalem from Babylon after uh, God has destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and how they have all these historical documents that they've been maintaining and keeping, but now they feel like those documents don't really explain how much they've learned over the last 70 years of being in exile and, and, and after the Jerusalem destruction. So they've gone back and they've looked at everything again and they've, they've recompiled the narrative that we have in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and they've really focused in on uh, the kings of Judah and the lineage of David. Remember in 1 Chronicles, they really zoned in on David specifically to say uh, exactly what happened in David's reign so that we can understand the promises that God has made to us, to, to them, the exiles, about a new David that would come. You go to Isaiah 9 and you learn about another David, a, 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 a sprout shooting up from the root of Jesse that is going to come. And so they have these promises about David, and so they focus in on the reign of David, and they bring out all the positives of David. Remember in 1 Chronicles, we didn't get into Bathsheba and, and the sin with your, and, and killing Uriah. We didn't get into the drama with all the sons and everything. It really focused on the success that God gave David. He blessed David throughout, 
throughout the book of 1 Chronicles. Not to say that it leaves out all the errors of David. It does tell us about some of his mistakes. But the mistakes are more so focused in on how David lost sight of his reliance on God. And as we come into 2 Chronicles, that's a really important fact to know because 2 Chronicles is really just a continuation of 1 Chronicles, okay? This is not, you know, this is because they didn't have enough room in the scrolls, they made another scroll and this, the breaking point was the death of David. So uh, it's not as though there's a different author now or that this book is written at a different time. This is all connected to the things that were in the first book. And as we come into the second book, we notice it's a much longer book because essentially it's going to cover all of the kings from Solomon to the end of Jerusalem, or the end of Judah. Uh, and so he's, we're going to learn what all of this is about and what, what point he's really trying to get across in this section because he's got a lot of kings and a lot of events to choose from, but he only selects those that really fit the ideas and the narrative that he wants his people, the exiles who are returning from exile, to understand. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to study to learn exactly what it is that he's getting at as we study through this section. And we'll notice this is much different than First and Second Kings, which is just essentially trying to list the good and the ugly. I mean, all of it mixed together and just give you a bunch of information about how... Uh, Israel failed and and Judah failed. This one seems to be more selective and more focused on a theme uh, and an idea. And so we'll we'll notice that as we study through. Okay. So to start off, we notice in chapter 1 that he begins with Solomon. David has passed away. Solomon is the next to rise onto the throne of David. No mention of the internal strife between Solomon and his brother Abijah, uh, just goes right into Solomon's reign and how glorious it was and and promoting Solomon and how how much he was able to accomplish because he was willing to humbly ask God for wisdom. And then uh, God blessed him and gave him tremendous wealth. And it kind of jumps right into, in chapter 2, Solomon building the temple. And that lasts from chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 7. The majority of Solomon discussion is about the temple, and we can understand why. They're exiles. The temple's been destroyed. And so here they are getting a focus on building the temple and understanding the value of the temple. And as you come to uh, the end after he's built the temple and Solomon has prayed to God, God responds to Solomon and listen to the information that's included uh, in God's response to Solomon. Go to chapter 7. Starting in verse 14, we're going to read kind of a lengthy section, so let's just read all this together and understand the relationship that God has with his people based on the temple that has been constructed. It says, if my people, verse 14 of chapter 7, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked, speaking to Solomon, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules 
Then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Notice the focus on that covenant promise to David. Uh, Then verse 19, But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from the land that I have given to you, And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought out all this this disaster upon them. Notice how relevant these words are as he's bringing those out in the the construction of the temple, that, that God will be faithful to them, he will forgive their sins, that he will help them and heal their land after he has punished them and, and hurt the land, and, and he will constantly put a descendant of David on the throne so long as they are seeking to, to obey his rules and keep his commandments. But if they turn aside and refuse to listen anymore, he's going to destroy the house and make it so bad that everybody's going to look, walk by and say, what happened here? And they're going to say, yeah, they abandoned God. And essentially, as we go through the rest of this book, we know from Second Kings and that study that it's going to happen. There's destruction that's coming. These are exiles that are writing about this. They know about the destruction. They know that God's promises have come to fulfillment uh, and fruition. They have happened as God had foretold. And so we'll see that happen throughout the rest of this book. So it's kind of a little foretelling that's going on as we read this part. Then you continue in, in, the, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we learn about the success of Solomon and his wealth and his prosperity and, and how he, he worshipped and how he uh, spread the wisdom throughout the world and, and had great, great wealth, but it leaves out his sin. That's interesting. doesn't really talk about his sin. Overall, Solomon's reign appears to be one of tremendous success uh, that God is showing how much he can accomplish in the king whom he chooses, Uh, that that he can bring about great wealth and great success and great prosperity. It's as though the writers just want to focus in on that and and bring that out, that that is what God can do for all of us. Uh, If we, as exiles, will turn to him and, and seek him out, there is tremendous wealth, tremendous success, and we're not going to mention Solomon's death or Solomon's idolatry uh, that happened before his death. But as you go into chapter 10, you learn about the descendants of David. You go from Rehoboam in chapter 10 all the way through to Zedekiah in chapter 36. There's a whole lot of kings that are being mentioned uh, from from this point in chapter 10 over uh, less than 400 years uh, of, of different kings reigning over Judah. Uh, And as you go through, you notice in chapter 10, Rehoboam uh, has the revolt that happens with Jeroboam, and there's a kingdom split that takes place. And all the ten tribes go up into Israel, and Rehoboam only reigns over Judah. Now, 
It's implied from chapter 7 that they must have not obeyed somewhere, but he doesn't really reveal that to us. So the writer here, I think, knows that we're going to have 2 Kings. We're going to have 1 Kings. We're going to have the, the fall of Solomon. And he doesn't feel like he has to bring in all that stuff. That's not the purpose of this book. Uh, so he, he tends to leave that kind of stuff out on occasion. Uh, but other occasions, he'll bring in the, the rebellion and, and kind of explain it whenever it fits what he wants to say. As you go through the kings, you notice there is the good kings, there's the bad kings, and then there's the really, really bad kings. And there's, there's uh, very interesting descriptions of these kings. In, in many cases, kings that aren't described very much in, in Second Kings and First Kings are given a lot of attention in the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Uh, as you go through, you learn the, the son of Rehoboam, Abijah, he reigns and he does good. After Rehoboam had uh, made a mess of things and worshipped idols, Abijah comes in and he trusts in the Lord. In verse 18 of chapter 13, uh, the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. There's, a, there's an event that took place as Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom. The Levites and all the faithful people in the northern kingdom came down into Judah, and this is described in the, the account of Rehoboam. They came down into Judah because that's where the temple was, and Jeroboam was trying to prevent them from worshiping God as he had commanded. And so we see that, that that movement of righteous people into the southern kingdom has developed a good kingdom. And Abijah is a good king. So even though Rehoboam did a horrible job, Abijah comes in and he does a great job leading the people. After him, we learn about Asa, who's also a really good king. And he shows extreme faith and trust in God as the Ethiopian army of over a million people come up against the people of Judah. He puts his trust in God, and even though they've only got 600,000 people, they go out and they, de they destroy the Ethiopians. And they have tremendous success. And Asa goes through and does all kinds of religious reforms to get things back to closer to what they're supposed to be. He was overall a really good king uh, as, as we study Asa. We learn about uh, Jehoshaphat as you continue. And Jehoshaphat was a really good king. Jehoshaphat had, had tremendous faith and did, did a lot of wonderful things for God. Uh, Uzziah, a great king. Uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, great kings. There's great kings in Judah. But then there's not so great kings. There's kings who don't care anything about what God wants them to do. They do whatever they want to do. Uh, and maybe at some point they trust in God, but they don't get the benefit they think they need, so they stop trusting in God, and they st start doing whatever they want to do. And then there are some kings that basically just spit in the face of God and say, I don't care anything about him. We're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to worship the way we want to worship, and, and we're going to defy God and, and have nothing to do with him. And so you see a listing of all these different kings doing all kinds of evil. It didn't matter if their fathers were righteous or if their fathers were evil. Uh, it just was random. Some of them wanted to do what was right and some of them didn't. But the ultimate failure that is brought out throughout this book is that in order to have success in all of their battles, they had to trust in the Lord. That was the key to their success. We, as we saw in, in Abijah, that 
There was this trust that he had. This is, this is prevalent throughout all of these stories. Uh, I brought up Asa and how at, at first he conquered those Ethiopians. He trusted in the Lord. But what's interesting in that story is at the end, it tells us he stopped trust, trusting in the Lord. When uh, the Israelites come up against him and they try to set something up to stop those who were in Israel from coming down to worship, instead of going to the Lord, Asa goes to the Syrians and pays them to come and to attack the Israelites. He stops trusting in the Lord and starts trusting in his own wisdom and his ability to make alliances. And then we learn that God is, is not okay with that. God sends a prophet to tell him, why didn't you trust me like you did with the Ethiopians? And then he has a disease in his foot. And he doesn't go to God. He goes to uh, doctors. He goes to other people to try to get some medical treatment. And, and he fails to turn to God and seek God's help and trust God to save him. And so at the end of his life, he kind of falls short of what he's supposed to be. Jehoshaphat does something similar. He's this wonderful king who is leading the people out against the Moabites and Ammonites and, and Mayunites who have, who have all of a sudden come upon him. And he just tells the people, trust in God. God can deliver us. God can, can defeat these enemies for us. And they go out and they, they put the singers in front of them and they, they are all singing and, and all excited. They believe God's going to deliver this people to them. And by the time they get up to the mountain and they come over, where the army should be ready to fight them, of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Mayunites, there's a bunch of dead bodies because they've all killed each other. And so Jehoshaphat's this wonderful leader who just exalts God and, and really does a lot to help the people trust in God. But he makes a mistake in trying to have an alliance with evil people. He tries to make an alliance with Ahab and marries in with, with Ahab, uh, has his son marry Ahab's daughter, causes all kinds of problems later. Uh, but God says, you shouldn't be doing that. And he tries again later to, to have an alliance with the Edomites in order to get, get wealthy. And, and God said, I would have given you all this stuff. I would have given you everything you needed. Why aren't you trusting in me? So Jehoshaphat even falls short in this. And then Uzziah as well. Uh, he doesn't necessarily stop trusting as he battles, but he starts to think more about himself, starts to be proud. And so he, after conquering great enemies and being a great king, he goes into the temple in order to offer an incense to God, thinking he's able to do that. When he's told not to, he gets angry and leprosy breaks out on his forehead. So we see throughout this that there's a, a failure to seek God. Even in these men who were good kings, they failed to fully trust in God and seek after God. And, and at the end, a lot of times, they kind of fell short of what God really wanted them to be. So as you read through this, and you kind of see this as a theme in almost all of these different kings, the bad kings, the ugly kings, they're, they're kind of failing to trust in God. We learned that God wants his people to trust him. If you're an exile who's trying to promote uh, something for all the exiles who are about to return into the promised land, how important is it for you to share with them their need to seek God, 
to trust in God, to be the one who provides you with the blessings. The blessings do not come when you try to do it all yourself. The blessings come when you seek God and you trust him and you let him fight with you to to defeat your enemies. The people of Israel, unfortunately, failed to do that throughout this book. But it ends with uh, some interesting stories that, that really help us kind of drive this home. First of all, you've got Manasseh, who's uh, one of the worst kings. Uh, he causes people to turn away into idolatry after Hezekiah did a lot to get the people to worship God right with the Passover and everything. Manasseh ends up turning the people uh, completely against God and into idolatry. And we learn about him in, in 2 Kings. But what's interesting in this text is we learn that Manasseh got the message whenever he was carried off into Assyria into captivity. He understood his sin and he turned from his ways and he sought God and he tried to promote God in the land. Unfortunately, the damage was already done. But he reigned for over 50 years and he he learned his lessons. He learned to seek God. And because of that, God did bless him to some extent during his reign. And then we learn about Josiah, a great king, who tried to restore things, but it was already too late. Because what happened is, at the end of Judah, the people were so far gone that there was no bringing them back. Ultimately, God's patience was tested one too many times, and God had to destroy them. Read with me verses 15 through 23 in Chapter 36, the last chapter. Verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year, it says, of of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Notice that the first of this is just kind of describing 
why God brought such a judgment upon his people. It doesn't seem right for God to be destroying his people. But they continually rejected God. It says they were making a mockery of his messengers. Jeremiah was one of them. Uh, they, were, they were doing all kinds of foolish things. As, as the messengers would come, they wouldn't listen to anything that the messenger had to say. And eventually, God said, that's enough. He could have said that's enough a long, long time ago. But he was very patient with them and merciful, allowing them to continue to exist and allowing the, the lineage of David to remain in power, in control, as he had promised. But eventually, he brought the Chaldeans against them and destroyed them, just as he promised he would. Notice at the end of this that the exiles are, are trying to remind everybody of all of these things that the people of old did that led to their exile. Why do you think he's doing that? He really wants them to understand, don't do this. You know, he wants to prevent any future rebellion. And throughout the book, he wants to promote the people to trust in God, to put their trust and their faith fully in God, not in the gods of men and not in the alliances with other nations that the previous generations had failed by doing. The message of the book is very clear, that God wants to extend mercy and to deliver his promised blessings. He's trying to do that over and over and over again. He's giving them chance after chance. He doesn't immediately destroy them. He lets them keep going, but eventually men refuse to trust him so much that he gives them over and he lets them be destroyed. Throughout the book, we learn that this is our tendency. As men, we tend to stop trusting in God and stop seeking his help. We tend to turn away from God, and we tend to pursue greatness and glory that is our own without considering or bringing in God to the equation. And the sad thing is that the leaders are at the forefront and the people tend to just follow them doing the same things that they do. We have to be very careful and make sure that we understand these messages. I think it's fitting for us to end on this book because really this is kind of the message that we need to get to sink into our minds. That if we're unwilling to put God first, to trust in God, and then we start trusting and relying on ourselves, which I think we have a very big tendency to do, we're going to find ourselves in a similar situation. You see, we notice as they stop trusting in God that their worship wanes. Their worship is not what it is during David's reign. It goes from the heights of Solomon's reign to... The whole temple's in disrepair multiple times. Joash and Jehoiada rebuild the temple and, and, and set up a treasury to reestablish it. Hezekiah has to go in and completely rebuild the temple. Josiah has to go in and completely restore the temple. They stop devoting themselves to worship because it's not about God anymore. It's about me and what I can accomplish. This is the big message of the book. And this is the message that I want us to all understand very clearly, myself included. If it's all about me, worship 
is empty. And devotion goes by the wayside. So we can't let that happen to us. If we're going to apply this book, we need to be sure that our worship and devotion are constantly growing and becoming stronger, not fleeting. You see, as God's people in the new covenant, we ought to have a new heart and a new spirit. That's what God put inside of us whenever he gave Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. A heart and a spirit that loves God, that devotes itself to serving and worshiping God and doing all the things that God desires, trusting God to provide what's needed and not seeking to establish ourselves and to do the things that we really want to do that are going to bring us glory and honor and satisfaction. Our goal is to glorify God. And if we seek Him, and we devote ourselves to his cause and his purpose. The picture in Second Chronicles is, we'll always win. If our goal is to fight his battles and to do his will, he will be with us and we will not lose. So we have to, we have to make sure that we're seeking his will, seeking his glory, but including him on the battle that we're in. If you're like me, this is not an easy thing. Uh, it's easy to just get so self-focused. I think our society kind of just pushes us to think about how we can help ourselves. That's why all those books are being sold. Self-help books, right? That's constantly what they're telling us. You have to help yourself. And, and we have to ask ourselves, whenever I've got a trial, whenever I've got a struggle or a temptation, where do I turn in order to find help and guidance? Do I turn to a self-help book? Do I turn to someone else and someone else's wisdom? Or is my first step to turn to God? We need to be sure that we're seeking God. We're seeking his help and his, his, his protection and his providence. We're praying to God in response to trials and temptations. He wants to be with us. He wants to help us, just like he wanted to help those kings. But they were so foolish to just ignore his promises that he made to David and he made to them and think, I'm going to do it on my own, my own way. We must not be that foolish. He is constantly there, constantly willing to supply everything that we need. His grace is made available for us so that we can accomplish great works to his praise and to his glory. We must give ourselves over to that. That's the purpose of the church, to be to the praise of his glory. And he wants to help us in that. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to give us power inside of us to promote his cause, to reach the lost, and to help those who, who don't know how wonderful he is to come to that understanding. If you're here tonight and you have not uh, come to that understanding, but maybe something that's been said has made you want to put your trust and your faith in God, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think if we will put our faith and trust in him. Have you done it? Are you willing to do it? And is there anything we can do to help you? Please come as we stand and as we sing.